Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, you're joined here by your boy, Heavy Days, here from the Upside Down Library. And as usual, we want to give a massive shout out to our incredible sponsors who helped make the show happen. I know you love Seeds here now, but guess what? They're taking it up yet another level. They've got a whole bunch of amazing celebrations and promos coming up over the month of February. Celebrating Groundhog Day, Valentine's Day, Presidential Day. And to kick it all off for the whole month of February, they're celebrating Pineapple. That's right, a range of different pineapple flavored strains across the site, 20% off. Be sure to get in on the fun at Seeds Here Now. All of the hottest breeders, the latest drops. Shout out Seeds Here Now. We appreciate your support so much. But in order to get your garden producing the best crop to date, you've got to make sure your room's dialed in. To do that, check out our friends at Pulse Sensors. Number one sensors and integrated hubs in the game, measuring all of the variables, PPD, VPD, temperature, humidity, dew point, all the extra variables you don't consciously track to help ensure your next crop is the best to date. Whether you're running a single tent, a single room, or a multi-state operation, Pulse Sensors are the number one in the game, and they've just recently released the Pulse Hub, a central unit to integrate all of their monitors to make sure that your rooms are the best they can possibly be. Massive thank you to Pulse Sensors. We appreciate you so much. Likewise, you've got to keep your garden pests and pathogen free. And to do that, you've got to check out our friends at Copit. These guys are the world leaders in sustainable biocontrol solutions for pests and disease. If you're battling spider mites, check out their new Spidex Vital Plus sachets. These are new Persimilis breeding sachets that release predator mites into your crop consistently over a period of several weeks providing you with sustained spider mite control. Now you don't have to spread carrier material through your garden just to introduce predator mites. Just hang the sachets on your crop, let the Persimilis walk out and do the work for you. Trust me guys, you don't want to have to go up against a spider mite infestation without Spidex Vital Plus. These are truly the best predators in the game. I promise once you use it, you'll see the quality. You'll never go back. Massive shout out to Copet. Likewise, you've got to check out our friends at Organics Alive. If you're growing organic, and want to use high quality powdered organic fertilizers, you simply cannot go past Organics Alive. These guys truly walk the walk and talk the talk. They have been picking up cups left, right and center with growers all around the country sweeping categories using their products. That is the ultimate testament in my opinion if home growers are winning competitions using their products. The proof is in the pudding guys, no matter what stage of the plant cycle you're at, veg, transition, flower, in need of micronutrients, or a very specific sort of boost in late flower, they've got it. You've got to check out Organics Alive guys, truly one of the best in the industry. We're super stoked to be working with them because we know how amazing their products are. Used in heaps of breeder gardens that we have on the show. Again, check them out, Organics Alive, massive thank you, massive shout out for supporting the show. Finally, a massive shout out to the entire crew at Dynavap. These guys make some of the best vaporizers on the game. I'm really passionate about this one because they help me to get off combustion and smoking bongs. If you have any concerns about your respiratory health, or heck, if you just want to try a different mode of ingestion, maybe try to get a better flavor hit, you've got to check out the Dynavap. These guys' units are cheap, they're incredibly well designed, and most importantly, they're very customizable. You can take your vape game to the next level, getting insane terps, all while retaining the potency you'd expect of a combustion or a bong. 
truly, I was smoking bongs for over 10 years. I'm now vape only. Massive shout out to Dynavap. They're one of the best in the industry and we owe them a massive thank you. Shout out again, Dynavap. Massive thanks for supporting the show. Finally, a quick little mention to our Patreon gang, truly the lifeblood of the show. If you want to get early access to episodes, unheard and unreleased interviews, as well as going in the running to get amazing genetics each month and fortnight, come on, check out the Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. We do live smoke with heavy sessions every fortnight and give away heaps of swag every month. Come check it out. We love you, the Patreon gang. Thank you so much. We are so appreciative. Today we're here for part two of our interview with Kevin Jodry. Talking all things breeding, growing, history, his recent trip to Pakistan, and so much more. So without further delay, let's get into it. You know, you just spoke about how different latitudes produce sort of different effects based on the original land races. And I think a lot of people listening are waiting for us to delve into it. Obviously, if anyone's been paying attention to your Instagram, you've had what looks like a really epic recent trip over to Pakistan. I'd love to talk a bit about this. What what stimulated this? How did all the ball get rolling? Oh, man, that was an epic adventure. I, I, I can't say enough about the Pakistan, the team I was with and the people of Pakistan, they were just lovely. Un- so, so friendly. Um, what started, it was, there was a, a group on, you know, yeah, we're all online, but I had, I had done some work with um, the Indian land race group where they had reached out to me and said, Hey, we're trying to do some promotion to get people to be more aware of genetic preservation. And that even though, you know, when you take the genes from one nation in small population and move them, you're not really doing an official preservation, but the idea that some of the genes stay alive and get shared and, and hopefully bring back some value to the farmer was what they desired. And so I, I say, Hey, I'm down. That sounds like a great project. I said, I'll, I'll participate. And what I did is I, I took some of the genes and I created a population, but I cleaned them up a little bit and got the intersex traits out because I knew that most people were going to grow them indoor. And I gave them out at conferences all over the world, right? I shared them everywhere. And so what it did is it, and all I asked was for people to give credit to the farmers in the region of Ghazni, Afghanistan. So this way, what we're doing is we're showing the, this relevancy of others that at the end of the day, all small cultivators are connected around the world by virtue of our craft. And so that it was successful where it brought a lot of attention to that, that project. And, it was something I was really into. And so it, it caught the it caught the eye of, you know, two groups, land race genetics and let's be friends Pakistan. So let's let's be friend Pakistan as a tourism group and land race genetics as a genetics collection group. And so they reach out to me and say, hey, you know, um, we just want to be your friend online and just chat with you once in a while. So I said, sure. And so we become friends and we chat once in a while over the years. And they say, we have this idea that we've been working on and we want to know if you'd be interested in coming out to Pakistan and experiencing our country and traveling the silk route and doing a collection with land race genetics. And if it's something that's positive for you to let the public know that this was a good place and that our people are good, kind people. 
And it, it sounds so simple, you know, and it's just that Pakistan had such a horrific reputation. I mean, I got a text when I was ready to fly out about chopping my head off. And I mean, the people, people believe that we were going to go there and be murdered. And, and I didn't believe that at all. I had been, man, I had a fantasy of going to Pakistan since I was a kid. I always wanted to see these regions and I was just bummed that I couldn't because of the wars in Afghanistan. And so when I got invited out by these two groups, I'd spent enough time talking to them online. I knew they didn't want to cut off my head. What they wanted was they wanted to, they, they're, they're, they're young, they're thirties and forties. You know, I'm almost 60. What they wanted was they wanted to be able to bring attention in a positive way. And it was such a, I want to say like lack of a better word, noble endeavor that I was like, man, I'm down. I'll support it. And so I fly out to Pakistan and I'm with uh, Green Walrus Danny and uh, his team. And I'm with uh, 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 two dudes from from England, one of them that's a breeder and another one that's working with an operation in Australia from Relief. So Neil from Relief was with us. And so we're called the internationals. And there was one other cat too, uh, Imran from uh, Canada, who is a, a premium extractor. And he was interested as hell too, because he's a really talented like street dancer. And so every cool place he's been on the earth, he goes and dances with the people and does some cool shit. And Pakistan was live because the backgrounds were wicked. And he would throw on some, on some music and just tear it up. Like this kid can move. So it was really uh, this interesting trip that they had gathered. Some of us knew each other. Some of us didn't. But it was just people that Let's Be Friends Pakistan and Land Race Genetics had connected to, you know, over the last year or two. And realized that, hey, you, you, you all make a pretty good diverse group. We think that if you all travel together with us, it'd be really a, a, a good adventure. So they put this idea together to travel the ancient silk route the route that connected the world really. And we were going to travel the silk route and then go explore the cannabis regions, do some collecting and enjoy, you know, the time together. And it was the single most insane trip I've ever been on in my life. Because when you're traveling the silk route, you are literally traveling the Kurukuram highway, which is like the deadliest road in the world. I mean, you got landslides going down. It, it's so rugged it, it let me understand like the first time i've had the concept of verticality where you know you're at like i think the highest we went when we went over past was like fourteen thousand, but the mountains around it were fourteen thousand feet higher than that so like you have this up and down that your neck gets tired from trying to look at the base and to the top of something because it's beyond comprehension and it's the there's four ranges that come together, but the Kurukuram, the Himalayas, and the Hindu Kush all collide there. And through those glaciers that feed at 7,000 glaciers up through Nepal and Pakistan, it creates the Indus River. And the Indus River is feeding, you know, one third the Earth's population with fresh water. So it's a river that's twice as big as the Nile. And it's one of the birthplaces of humankind. And it, so this, if this, these areas to me were just like mythical because I had studied them as a kid and I'm in love with herbs. So I'm fascinated by the regions that really developed all the varieties that we use so much in North America. So the ability to go and, and visit this place was just surreal. And the teams were awesome. The, the Let's Be Friends Pakistan put a trip on that couldn't have been any more comprehensive. It was like every day you were 24 seven 
experiencing Pakistan. By the time you left, you're almost a native. And for me to go and get to do some collection work with the land race crew was awesome because they'd spent the last seven years practicing collecting. And so they knew the regions and they knew the profiles and they knew what profiles were coming from what type of gardens, what type of companion plants. Like they had a really intuitive, technically developed view of the job. So it made it awesome for me because, you know, hanging out with a bunch of weed freaks is never bad. And hunting herb in the mountains with people that are able to help you understand with the patterns that they see. And so you're just there to participate with them. I wasn't there to teach them anything. I was there just to work with them as a friend. So it was just totally cool. It was, it was like total camaraderie. And when we arrived, the group said, hey, we know you guys smoke a lot. So we got you uh, six quarter pounds of indoor grown in Pakistan, which was fire, and 500 grams, half a kilo of hash. So we had... And there was probably like seven kinds of hash, but it made up a total of 500 grams, all killer hash from Tira. So you know it's going to be a good time when you show up and there's a pound and a half of herb and, and half a key of hash to smoke. And so we basically smoked our way through the, the trails and explored the mountains and the people of Pakistan and got to check out some stunning cannabis varieties with patterns and profiles that I really can't describe because... I don't have the ability to describe them. It just blew my mind. It was it was so interesting to find the true outliers. Wow, that's that's absolutely incredible. I'm sure everyone's you know very jealous. What a what a warm welcome. You know, a pound and a half and half kilo of hash. Beautiful, beautiful man knows how to welcome people. I guess the first question I'd love to ask is, um, you know, what what were some of the standout sort of profiles or plants you came across on that journey? You know, there's the the one that resonated more than any was. I want to say it was the only way you could describe it would be some form of like lacquer thinner combined with every ingredient in an exotic spice shop and then swirl that shit together and then turn the volume up to 10 where this thing screamed. The smell that emanated off that plant just ripped through a field when when when. I didn't find that one. Uh, Jamie found it. And so he finds it and he yells, whoa, and, and he shakes it. And I can hear him, you know, shaking something. And the odor led us to it. And I mean, you're in a field of weed and the, it, it was so volatile that just him moving it pulsed it through the entire crop. Just incredible. There was a, a another profile I, I really love, but I was I would say it's like a classic Kush. And that we would say, what is classic Kush? That dirty, earthy, tobacco-y cigar box. But now take all that shit and clean it up. Clean it up and refine each one of those flavors so that they're clear and crisp and defined. And then weave them all together so that you're just having this, this, this explosion in your nose of, of those things. You, you think you're in some type of haberdashery like a clothing store where there's fine fine epicurean tobacco and the the, the smell of the wood and the, the the fabric and the material just leather unbelievable i just loved it there was plants that were so wet with essential oil that when you rubbed against them it wet your arm 
and I had to look up and I laughed too because I did it multiple times. I go, oh, it must have rained. And it because it, it was, they were literally wet. They were just dumping liquid. And then you found plants that were the polar opposite where they were bone dry, but they had the most granular, grainy, gritty rising heads. Just and so what we did is we basically looked for everything that had good morphology where the plant had a decent frame on it. And that was interesting too, because the mineral levels are so high from the glacier that that the plants are just absolutely leathered. When when you tried to rip a branch off, I mean it almost cut your hands trying to pull the, the bark through your fingers. It was it was you had to tear them off with putting your feet on the ground. You look at a lot of plants of today, you can peel them off with your hands. This shit was cemented. And when you cut it with a knife, it was so lignified. It wasn't like a cannabis stalk. It was almost like a semi-hardwood. Just so minerally dense. The food was like that too. Super high mineral levels in the food. So you just notice some very extreme differences than what we're used to. But what, what we did is we just looked for outliers that caught our eye. And so you would just go and go through hundreds of plants, just going plant to plant to plant. And there was what, seven of us, eight of us together looking. And so we would look through a, you know, a shitload of plants and anybody who found something they thought was an outlier would yell. We'd come over and look at it. I had a journal. We would then identify, is it, is it something unique? Yes. Then we write, why was it unique? Code it. And then, then bag it and double tag it so that we had the plant to sift later. And every time we found something similar, we would go to the journal and say, okay, this is something similar. Do we think this plant is better or worse than the one we collected? And if it was better, then we would collect it and put it into the journal. So at the end of the day, it gave us like 60 plants that we had collected out of, you know, eight different collection sites. And then that that allowed us now to be able to to break those into categories where I was able to say, okay, these are our, these are our earth categories. These are the ones that have um, some of these fruit profiles. These are the ones that are colored in this direction. These are, these are all purple, almost black. These are, these are a matrix. So it let me start to create kind of divisions of what we were looking at and why we were grabbing it and how to kind of explain it to the public. And then what we did is we took that that truckload of plants, 60 plants in trash bags, filled the truck. And then as soon as we got to the hotel at night, we would break the plants down and start to separate the buds from the bodies of the plant. And then because it's so dry there, we would leave them out at night and they would slowly dry. Then in the morning, we would seal everything up and then move to the next site. And as we did, but every night we would open every one of the bags either on the roof of the building or on the, on the porches and everything was organized and we would work as a team constantly allowing the plants to dry enough to de-seed so that at the end of the, at the end of the trip, what we had was a case of product versus a pickup truck of product. And then once we got back to Lahore, we were able to go through and do a final sift and cleansing and get rid of all the chafe seed, get rid of all the undeveloped. And there should be a picture on my IG of a tabletop filled with bags of seeds and each one of those reflect the ones we kept. And the only one we really got rid of was we selected it, but when we broke into it, we realized it was a bug factory where that, that we didn't see any real pest problems on any plant. I mean, it was incredible resistance, but one plant had every, if there was a bug in Pakistan, it was on that plant. 
And so we laughed and said, well, however nice this smell, this is exactly the last plant one wants to bring into their grow world because it's a it's it's a trap. And so having trap plants is great, but um, also not great. Wow, that that's awesome to hear the the process behind it all and how you were able to get so many cool different samples. One of our fans submitted questions was if you had to pick just one of the lines that you were able to secure, which one are you most excited to dig through? Oh shit, that first one I talked about. I want to say it's a uh, 4D. So each one of the each one of the sites was was numbered with a, you know, a number and then each selection was given a letter. So we had eight sites. So we had one through eight, and then each each location had a variable amount of uh, selections made. Some one, two, some ten. Just depend on it. Was really all quality based. But that first one, that first one was so noxious and ferocious and and crazy that I'm like, I want to go there first. And I second, I would go into those cushions that I chose because I really love that tobacco coffee chocolate you know that old world type profile you know the the uh, like a true bubba kush even like gorilla glue is a similar that chocolatey flavor um done right you know to me that's just the epic profile and so those are the ones i'd go into second but that's that first one and the beauty of it too was that it was an absolute dumper and dumper means that it had an incredible collection of seed that were fully ripe on the plant, which some of the plants did not. And so if I don't see seed that's developed, that lets me know that the plant's going to have a longer flowering period. And that doesn't work well for most people. Definitely not outside. And so the way the Pakistanis work it is they don't they don't sift females. What they do is they sift males. So it's their male selection that they work with. They don't they don't do like a a true open population. They do a selected pollination and they choose the males both on purple and green. So you get both colors. Purple is more for frost resistance from their opinion. It's a little bit more resistant to issues, but they think the green has a more interesting chemotype. But they make sure that there's both males in the field all the time. And then they choose the ones that have the best vigor, you know, best uh, display of uh, flower formation, best odor, just the qualities that someone would seek in a in a pollinating male. And they have a diversity of them, but they rogue out most of them. And so you can you can kind of see the consistency in pollination because they've culled out all the males early. They didn't want present. So that way it lets you at least be able to compare the plants to each other. If it's a true open pollination, it's a nightmare. You don't know if the plant, was it the male that triggered quick and pollinated or was the female early? What happened? But if it's all the same males and then oh, the females are different, we can say, okay, this one has a reasonable finish time. And so the one that I liked the most was the seeds were phenomenal. So what we saw too was incredible diversity in seed size from, you know, huge, like, you know, pinky tip to microscopic and when you looked at it under a loop they were completely developed complete perfect but just rat yeah and it's the same deal because you got to remember that for the pakistanis and and the afghanis cannabis was first a food source before it was a drug and it still is so they use the seed to survive the winters and they roast it with wheat and that way they're getting all the fats and the omegas 
and it gives them great health. They use the byproduct as a tea, and then they also bang out some hash for hash. Places like Tira, which are, are which is the primary hash region of the country, their you know primary function is hash. All the other products, second and third. Whereas most of Pakistan's seed primary, so and and they don't breed for big seeds either, because what they want is diversity. So they're they're intelligent in a way that only someone who's been touching a plant for eighteen hundred years, fifteen hundred years can be. That's beautiful. Definitely some wisdom in a lot of the different practices you just uh, mentioned them doing there. I'd love to ask you know on the other end of the spectrum. Did you see any population contamination while over there, any European or American genetics? And as a quick follow-up, what was sort of the farmer's perspective? Were they aware of like American and sort of more Western genetics at all? Yeah, they they are because the, the one thing I noticed in the world, no matter what elevation, altitude, location, everybody's got a cell phone. And so, you know, the whole world is on IG. And so they're fully aware, but they they they're kind of protected in a way that different than like Morocco, Lebanon, where tourism is is still you know pr- pretty prevalent to a degree. Pakistan has been on a you know twenty year hiatus where people really haven't been there since nine eleven. So I mean, I only saw one white person the entire time I was there, and that was a German tourist. And German tourists are notorious for going where no one will go. And so you know if there's if there's a, if there's a single white person anywhere up in the side of a mountain. I would say it's probably a German tourist because they they are absolutely ferocious on exploring. But that's it. We were the only white people we saw. And so when I spoke to all the different farmers and all the different groups, you know, the questions I was asking were, you know, do you hold your lines individually? And they said, no, we all share. We all share the lines. We choose uh, best stock. If we have great crops, we share the seeds with others. And they didn't have any infiltration from any American or Dutch genes because nobody had been over there. And it was, it was awesome to see that, that it was still this protected population. And yes, they are curious about the, 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 you know, about the, the, the new genes, but where you see those developed are not in the outdoor fields. That is in the new indoor industry of Pakistan. And so Pakistan and the upper middle class, uh, high class financial level people, um, the kids of that world, they want Western type shit. And so they want to smoke gelato. They want indoor runs. And so when we got there and they broke out this weed, I looked at it and it was dank. And I just said, this is some really good grass. And I said, this shit is not outdoor. And they were like, no, it's indoor. And I'm like, how'd you ship it in? And they said, we didn't. One of our friends uh, grew it. They imported all their grow equipment from another country and they have an indoor sparked up at their house or at a location. And they are producing this good indoor. And I was cracking up because, you know, it was like lemon sorbet and, you know, shit that you see in the California market, but in Pakistan and done correctly, it was really well done. Like well done, well-grown weed. So the indoor is what the, the 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 trendies want. They don't want outdoor. And so you only see the genes coming in on the indoor end. And I think that, you know, as time went on, I I, I it was awesome having Imran there because Imran's a really talented extractor too. So it was neat to see him and the 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 native extractors hanging out, you know, talking shop because they they work off of a dry sift static. 
But, you know, when we're talking, they're working up a drive stiff static. That means that Saeed that we were rolling with, he's got a four acre patch himself. And so he's hand sifting four acres of cannons. Wow. So like, you know, and, and, and his first memory is like, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, what, what, what was it like being a kid, you know, like in the world of cannabis here? And he goes, oh man, my first memories of helping my dad when I was three. And now I'm in my late thirties. So, I mean, I spent my whole life basically making hash with my family. And now I'm the, the senior hash maker. And they just had a familiarity and comfort with the product that was refreshing because what we've done is we've become so obsessed with this perfection that it, to me, it's bougie where, you know, every detail has to be just right, or it can't cross your lips. And, you know, and majority of smoked in Pakistan is being smoked in tobacco wrapped around a cigarette or inside a cigarette. And people were like, Oh God, they need an education and a lesson. And I'm like, no, that's, that's how they consume it. It's their world. And it's not right or wrong. It's just our perspective. But I would love to have had, you know, someone like Saeed come back to the U.S. and go to a hash operation and watch them make cash in this in this new world and then have all those hash makers go back to Pakistan and work dry sift tech with them because they're having to do it with far less resources. And so the the art is greater than the science where in our world, the science is becoming greater than the art. And uh, you have to meld both of them for incredible. They, they, a, a great scientist is an artist and a great artist is a scientist. It, it's just that where the focus lie, but you can't separate the two of them completely. Art by itself has no end and science by itself has no direction. So when you can put them together, you form like some incredible stuff. And that's, that's Da Vinci. Da Vinci was art and science merged. So to me, you know, when you, when you look at it from that perspective, it's always, it's always a, a neat way to look at things because you don't get comparative with like our products better, our product, their product was incredible because they could do dry sift that was shelf stable, that was absolutely aromatic and rich full flavors they off gas it in the cold for months before they make the hash so they get rid of the profiles that we love most in america which is gas they don't like it because they think that it gives you a hangover the next day and makes you groggy so they off gas the gas and it reveals all these subtle fruits and florals that i hadn't experienced in dry sift hash it was really interesting but it fits their world. They don't want to be too fucked up because you're walking on the side of a mountain. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> until you're until you're in Pakistan, you realize you're not on a lot of flat ground. <laughs> Some of that shit was. I mean, we were climbing up these things. I was like, "Oh, you got to be kidding me!" And then these kids come running by us like goats, and it made me feel like I was ninety instead of sixty because the kids are laughing, just skipping down. And it just helps you understand, well, what they want is they want the benefits of the cannabis they consume, but they want to be able to control it in a way that fits their reality. And it was beautiful to see because, man, you have, you know, you got 500 grams of killer hash to smoke. And then every village we went, we got hooked up with somebody that hash. Friends of the team would meet us at certain locations and they would show up with hash. We got to hang out with a dude that was a miner, he owned a mineral company. And he had just got back from Morocco. And so he brought a brick of Moroccan hash with him. 
that he just hand carried over. So we're grinding up Moroccan hash and filling joints and we're wrapping them with snakes of Tira Valley, Pakistan hash. It was like a hash smorgasbord. I, I mean, I smoked a lot of hash in my life, but I don't know if I was ever consciously trying to smoke myself through, you know, 500 grams over a three week period. Cause that's a lot of smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Undeniably. That's a lot of smoke. That's, that's incredibly impressive and, and, you know, a beautiful story. The next question I wanted to ask you was, what sort of plants do you think would cross well with some of the seeds you got on the Pakistani trip? You know, like, do you think like, just as a general thing, like OG cross to some of the plants might be a cool combination or does anything jump to mind in that respect? You know, it's interesting. I did, I, I started messing around with the Afghani work that I got from Ghazni and they're, they're, they're not similar gene pools, but similar regions. And I started messing around with the males that I was pulling out and I laid them into everything I had just so I could see the influence on it. And some of them lined up better than others. It was funny, but the, the, the disgusting sulfurs that I was working with, they didn't bring that same heat to the OGs. And I went through a bunch of different plants, but the cherry pie took the, took the profile incredibly so it was kind of shocking because I didn't expect that sulfur to be minimized by the gas of the OGs and the sour and the chems. And I mean, I, I went through a plethora of them, but it was the cherry pie that turned out to be the most disgusting, powerful rosin I've smoked in the last couple of years. I mean, it, it was almost scary high. Like, you know, sometimes it's funny, but sometimes the shit's just uncomfortable where you just like, whoa, you want to come down because you are just fired up. So I think that's truthfully, that's where I would start. I would take that, that plant and I would go into the cherry pie and I would also look for the same male that I chose in that to go into the select red lead puck because if I could add more complexity to that, it'd be unbelievable. And so, and both of those are similar, like red lead puck. I mean, I'm fascinated by it because it, it has a profile that it, everyone in my house had to listen to me talk about this shit for a year. But when they got to smoke it, they were like, whoa, I got you. I can see why you're so obsessed with it. And it has a really similar like cherry pie type bite. Cherry pie is mouthy. It, it, Cherry pie done right is incredible and it makes a superior hash. The flavor profile is just ridiculous. And I just happened to, I get the old original cut. And so the cut that I have, Jackson, he has an S1 of it. He found a seed in a bag that he uses in all of his work. That's all his cherry work. That's louder than the cherry pie mother. But I like the base cherry pie. It, it's it's just such a perfect plant for where I live, and my family loves to smoke it. And I just love the flavor. And for whatever reason, it takes male pollen and does some interesting shit with it. I can see why it's woven into so many other plants. I can see why cherry pie is you know that's your you're into billions and billions and billions of dollars of herbs sold every year that have cherry pie in its lineage. So I would go there first and, and, and mostly because I'm not looking like if I wanted to do something cool, I could go into something that's polar opposite and say, okay, I'm on the 34 latitude and I'm in a, I'm in a heavy chemical. Let me go down to like the, you know, the zero latitude. Let me go into a heavy floral, which would put me into like an African or 
And it's a shame Australia doesn't have any la true land race because your your latitudes in the zeros too. But um, that sent me into Africa. That sent me into uh, if I go up a little bit higher, like thirteen, I'm in the 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 bottom of Mexico. That puts us into like Thailand. Any of those things would cross really well, which is really the original hybrids that took over North America was they were taking things that were distinctly unrelated and putting them together and doing big population work to find the parents. So, you know, there's nothing original about that. It's you, you and, and that's not a, a derogatory comment. You don't need to reinvent the wheel every time you wake up in the morning. Sometimes it's nice to say, okay, they took that and that and put it together and came out with some incredible shit. Maybe I do that. But what I wanted to see more than that was I wanted to see it in a chassis that was workable for my area so that I was already bringing the, the, the chances of success into a tighter realm of possible. And if I was to want to mess around with something of today, I would take that Oreo cut that's basically bulletproof, mold proof, grows like a weed. I mean, it couldn't be a better chassis as a plant and throw that profile on it. But, you know, I'd have to go through enough of them to find it. But if you could put the two together, it'd be an A+. Plus. Just like the cherry pie. Only, only problem with the cherry pie is it's got a little bit of mold prone. It doesn't like the moisture at the end of the cycle. It's a, it's a perp. Perps don't like moisture at the end of the cycle either. So if I had to say there was one thing I didn't like about the plant is that it, uh, and I'm glad it finishes early because if it went late, you wouldn't have it. Yeah, what a comprehensive answer. I love it. That cherry pie hybrid sounds incredible and I myself, big, massive fan of the cherry pie. I think it's one of the best strains out there. So that's awesome to hear that it lined up like that. And as an extension of the last question, you know, I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you, when, when, when we talk about land race genetics in general, everyone generally speaking, except like Afghanis and Thais, like there's some real fire in there. But I wanted to ask you, what are some of the other land race or old world genetics that you think are really underrepresented that might have something to offer? And the reason why I bring this up is because I noticed you'd put a post up about doing a Cambodian F2 and it sort of got my brain juices stimulated. That's a killer one too. Yeah, you know what was, was, was cool was like what made it good for me was that growing up as a kid, I got to see a lot of herb coming in from around the world. And then when I left Rhode Island and went in the military. I lived in Hawaii in the mid eighties and Hawaii was just a hotbed of the nastiest weed. And then we were raiding all kinds of boats out at sea. So I got to see all the herb coming in from Asia too, but all, all like original gene stock. So it, it just left this incredible print in my mind of profiles and impacts. And it, it's my, it's my foundation. And so I, I, Spent years after that, you know, chasing different directions. And so when I started hanging out with uh, Mexican cats, I'm like, hey, bring me seeds from the grows you guys are doing in Mexico because I was moving the weed. Let me get some of the good seeds you're screwing with. And then I would grow them indoor so that I would be able to experience what it was like to grow these profiles. And then as time goes on, I get to travel the world and look at stuff and what what really helped me most more than anything recently was I got to go to Jamaica and I went out there with the 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 PIF crew, which was uh, Joe the Hardway and White Boy Kev up out in New York. They're like the original PIF Hayes guys. And so we were we were gonna do this project in, in Massachusetts with the group Community Gardens. And I came up with the idea that we ought to go to Jamaica to go take a look at a project that's going on out there, which was this preservation project of this guy's lifetime of collecting land race genes. And since it was in Jamaica, 
you get to see like a true representation of it in an equatorial climate. And where he is in Spanish town is the driest part of the Caribbean. So it gives you a really interesting ability to do fuel like varieties in addition. So I got to see some crazy hybrids from genes I had provided him that he got to weave in with some of his work. So me, Kevin, Joe fly out to Scott family farms in Jamaica. And we spend the next week out there really looking at the, the, the breeding projects and looking at the varieties. And it was just epic because it let me take a look at the Colombian collections. It let me take a look at the Mexican collections, the, the green apple, um, Acapulco golds where like two puffs into it. It literally lit up like a green sour apple candy in your mouth. The Zacatacas purples that are just ultra perfumey and pungent. And I had really never played with the Zacatacas and I hadn't had Acapulcos that had fruit flavors either, really. So it was like directions I hadn't explored. We got into the, he had the, the Mullenby Madness, which is really a tie. And so some of the tie lines were epic. He had a beautiful collection of Laos work and Cambodian work that he acquired while he was in uh, Cambodia and Laos. And I had already gone through a population of his Cambodian three line crossed into a C5. And actually I have some hanging in my garage right now. It just came down a little while ago because it could make it through the rain. And so I have probably a couple pounds of that that I'm going to trim up and then have some really killer C5 Hayes Cambodian three for the rest of the season. Oh yeah, it's nasty, man. I, I was able to break a little branch off maybe like two weeks early so that I could just dry it and have it to smoke. So I could just like, let me, let me, cause I grew it before, but I just, let me, let me, let me puff on this shit. And man, it was such a searing, clear, clean high, just beautiful. If you like a good, beautiful, like electric high, that's not racy or edgy, but just total clarity and energy in a, in a controlled way, that stuff is money. I really liked the Laos hybrids too. They brought some really interesting lemon profiles and the high was ripping. Um, I, I messed around with some Zamals when I was younger, but they were always hybrids and they, they were kind of always hybridized with things that took the Zamal edge off. And I got to mess around with some real Zamals that he had that was same thing. We call them carrot weed when I was young, so it had that carrot flavor, but holy shit, that, that high was cracking. He was able to take some of the, I want to say he took like some of the Laos or some of the Cambodian and then went into a black lime reserve. So I had some of the original black lime reserve seeds put away in, in the original box. And I sent them to him, you know, a year or so to back to play with. And I got to see some of that woven in. So you started to see some of the fuel and the limes brought in with some of the tropicals. He had a, a bunch of different Congo work that he had done. So the red Congos, and so you got to experience some of that bitey, sharp Congolese work. He had done um, a collection called Skunk by Scratch, where he went to the three different locations where skunk is supposed to come from, which was Afghanistan, Mexico, and Colombia. And in those regions, brought back the genes from those regions, and he recreated his own skunk one, but from his own source collection. And that was really interesting, too, because what he had gathered was choice and you got to see some different edges to the profile because it wasn't in your typical skunk gene pool, just from same regions. So at the end of the day, man, what you got to do is you got to go through as much herb as you can find and kind of find what you like and what works for you. 
And, you know, and for me, what I always try to find is, is things that, that I'll do a couple of runs indoor personally for smoke on shit that doesn't like being outside. Like my LA Kush, if we have a wet fall, it doesn't like it. So if I'm in a drier, hotter climate, it kills it or the year happens to be coincidentally drier than normal. But otherwise, I run it indoor. I run it bio indoor and I, I, I get that product that I want, but from that method. But everything else I sift for myself for personal use is, is sifted for my yard. I sift it for my, my personal grow. And that's why, you know, some of the things that are sorted, that's why I like the Mexican work better. And I think that the Mexican lines are completely un, uncredited. I think that I think the Mexicans in general get fucked. They, it's almost like they, they didn't contribute to the industry. And really, I mean, they were absolutely flooding America for years and the quality of the products coming out, Michoacan and Oaxacan and the Zacatacas and Acapulco's and just stunning, stunning work. And it works in our environment. And so I think in a perfect world, you know, you'd see a lot more of the Mexican work being moved into the system for California cultivation. And you'd see, you know, the, the, the Colombians, the stuff coming out of, Zamal, uh, the ties being grown in glass houses down in like central and southern California where they could have that balmier environment because our cold gets too cold and the plants don't like it. So they don't like the cold. They can handle it. They can handle the moisture. They can't handle the cold. So I think that, you know, is is you you define where you want to grow and then you go chase those gene pools that work for you in that regard. Wow. What an awesome answer. You are. You, you read my mind and, and touched on the, the Jamaican trip I was going to ask you about because I noticed you were, as you mentioned, the Scott Family Farms, a.k.a. Reefer Man. What a, what a blast from the past to, to see him pop up down there. What's, what's the end goal of the, the project he's doing there? Is it to, to be able to offer some seed stock or is he growing herb? No, he was, he was down there, you know, uh, Charles is in the same situation everybody's in, man. You're 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 working in cannabis for your whole career and you get involved in any large operation and it turns into a freak show. And I think that um he had some bad circumstances and he settled there. And what he was trying to do was use this incredible location. That Spanish town location was phenomenal. You know, it's funny, Kingston is like the that's the irony of the world. Kingston is considered like a really rough area, and Spanish town is considered the roughest area of Kingston. And it was still way safer and cleaner than San Francisco. So everybody always laugh. I'm like, I'm from California. You know, I don't think you understand. California's a mess. Um, but the climate was ideal. And it allowed him to be able to work a tremendous amount of work. And what he was trying to do was basically, you know, do his 2023 release and start to hand over the business to his kids. And he and I knew each other. I've never met Charles in person until that day I showed up. We just knew each other online because we're both in the gene game. And we chatted a bunch of times. And when I was talking to the team at Community Gardens, Steve and Doug, and we were talking about working together on a project, I said, hey, if we got the Hayes guys with us, it would be incredible to just jump to Jamaica and go spend a week with Charles and go look at all the foundations of the things that really created the plant that they worked with solely for 20 years. And it would, it, and it's for me, I like, I love working with other people and getting to see their experiences and understand how they view a thing. And so I said, Hey, I don't, and I didn't know them either. We were all, we all just met on a zoom for a business conference call 
But I, I was talking to Charles. I knew the project was going on. I'm on the, the computer screen with the two La Marina boys. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I know this is going to sound crazy, but the three of us should go to Jamaica and go look at the products and get ourselves educated on the diversity of all these lines at the same time next to each other. That was the thing is that I've seen these plants over the course of my life, never in the same room at the same time, all grown side by side. It was like what, you, what I think made me understand OG well is that I probably had 15 different OGs and I used to run them all side by side. So there was no question they were not the same, but everyone was an OG. And it allowed me to say, why is this OG better than this one? Or, or why is this one sold for more money than this one? Or why is this one more popular with this group? Why is this one so successful here? Because I had them all and I ran them all next to each other. When you're running them independently, you only see that thing. But when you put them all in the same room at the same time and you're segregating the population so you can pay attention and then you're recording it, you can really make some pretty good opinions and so to go see all this plant material that he had collected his whole life from around the world and get to hang with them and listen to him tell you why he had collected it and why he had worked it and where he got to this point it let all of us see a part of the industry that we're not involved in and also for him to see parts of the industry he's not involved in and it allowed for the Californian and the New York group to, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm from New England. I'm a Rhode Islander, but I spent, you know, shit, 30, 35 years in California. So basically California is where I've spent majority of my life. That's where I know the industry best. So that background in California lets me talk to New York and New York, since they've been there their whole lives, they can say the same thing. And we can really start to understand what are the differences and the similarities in consumptive patterns, desires cultivation, like all the little details that just you need to understand so that you're able to pivot intelligently when you need to. There you go. Over the years, you know, a lot of people do find Reeferman to be a bit of a polarizing guy. And some people have said that, oh, he never shipped my seeds, things like that. I'm, I'm sure you heard from some people, they might not have been stoked about your recent trip. What would you say to someone who is critical of, you know, the trip to visit the farm? You know, the I, I only knew Charles online and he and I met online and neither one of us actually knew who the other one was. Like he I didn't realize I was talking to Reefa Man. He didn't realize that who I was. And so we we meet through a, a friend talking about genes. And when we realized who each other was, it was kind of fun because it allowed him to have somebody that uh, was a weed freak that he could kind of share his weed freak shit with so i get to enjoy him as a, as a as a person in that regard and then i start to find out you know all this backstory of um you know let me say i want to say like white supremacy and so i was like holy shit man you got a wicked backstory but <laughs> the whole time i'm speaking to him online everything was good and never once did i get any kind of feel that he was uh that kind of dude and when I when I see the problems with business, I realize that people have issues and the issue with cannabis is that the whole industry is so fucked up that I don't see a single company that doesn't have about 50 different I hate you because something unhappy. So I didn't really know how to take it. And so when we went out there and hung out, 
he explained, he goes, hey, I was from like a white supremacist background. I was raised right wing as a kid. And he goes, I, you know, I got into Buddhism. I'm trying to be a better guy. And what made me believe it was that I spent that week with his family, right, his kids. And his two daughters were the two nicest girls he could have been around. I mean, like balanced. He got three daughters, but the two of them, I met two of them. And they couldn't have been any nicer and and uh, genuine. And one of them had a, a Jamaican boyfriend. So if, if living in the house, so if you're a white supremacist, you're, you're definitely not allowing your daughter to have a, a Jamaican living in your home. And the way they all got along was really pretty beautiful. And I just realized that, you know, as nutty as your background may be and as crazy as life may be, you can't have two daughters that nice that are still sticking with you for years if you're, if you're that fucked up. And so it just let me see a piece of them that was solid. And that's the piece I focused on because there's, there's, you know, decades of people saying great things about Charles. And then there's decades. Once I started digging in, I said, Holy shit, you polarize people incredibly. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a, a toss up between I love you and I hate you. So the only thing I can do in that kind of circumstance, and what I try to do in general, is just what are we there for? We're there to be, explore your crop. You're being gracious enough to let us explore it. And in the process, I'll be able to talk about the trip and get some attention onto the La Marina boys so their story gets covered and the story about them exploring the 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 the, the, the work. And it brings attention to community and it seemed like a win-win for all. And I would say that some of the blowback on it was like, you know, do you know who he is? He fucked me on some seeds or he has a past history. But, you know, I'd say probably 80% of the comments were really pretty positive, maybe even 85 out of 100. And in general, Charles had had a good run. But you're in cannabis long enough and you try to go legal. The minute you get into legal cannabis, you lose control over what you're doing. And people are so erratic in legal cannabis that, holy shit, if your name's connected to it, man, you better be careful. So Charles was nice to us while we were there. And he absolutely is a weed freak beyond belief, man. He absolutely loves breeding dope. There's no question about that. And his memory of the work was phenomenal. So it allowed us to go toward the past with them. And so I don't have any bad memories of the trip and I don't have a bad vibe from him. You know, we haven't spoken in a minute. He was having some health issues. And so once people start to struggle and stuff, I just give you some space. And he was he was having some health issues, uh, you know, just personal shit. But all in all, man, Charles was gracious and his daughters were really friendly and the trip was good. It was just a really positive trip, you know? And so I, I say to Pakistan, everyone's like, well, what about the Afghan refugees? What about the women? And I'm like, okay, I live in California. What about our refugees? What about our homeless? What about our, our violence? I said, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Tell everybody else how to live when we can't get our own shit straight? So like, how am I supposed to fix these problems? And people like, well, you know, you're not addressing it. I'm like, how am I supposed to address it? I'm being brought in to look at genes. I got brought into the Middle East to look at a project. Everyone's like, well, what did you do when you're there for the piece? And I'm like, well, what the fuck would you like me to do? That, that's not my expertise. You know how I do peace? I, I try not to cause anybody any problems. And I don't hit you in the head with a fucking hammer when I'm angry at you. So 
there's there's only so much you can do, right? And the the main thing is that you try to be as decent as you can. And if people are totally out of fucking control, then you can't be around them. So like there's projects that I have to turn down because I'm like, yo, you 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 burn too many people and I know it. So I can't work with you, man. You just you got a bad history, bro. It's just like you're nice to me. We get along good, everything's great. But like my man, you lit everybody around you on fire. I can't play with you. But in this case, you know, I wasn't doing business with Charles. We were really wanting to explore these gene worlds that he was digging into so that we were able to come back into the New England area and bring that flavor with us, courtesy of the La Marina boys, because they're mythical New York figures in the Hayes in the Hayes crowd. Yeah, it's great, great to hear your answer there. You know, I definitely can resonate with love me, hate me, you gotta pick one and choosing love seems like better option to me so i can certainly appreciate that and it's good to hear you're able to you know give a bit of props to the la marina boys so you know some positive can come out of it i wanted to to pivot for a moment and ask you about something different which was i wanted to talk about autos for a second because uh when we when we had sean from flying lion research on the show a little while back you dropped a comment talking about how you know sean had given you some seeds when you saw him at one of the conventions recently mm-hmm. i was wondering what's your thoughts on autos you know do you think they're going to play a role in the future what's your ex- experiences being growing them out autos are definitely going to play a role in the future because they they allow they allow you a couple things it seems like um autos are tougher the the, the issue with autos is that they're sensitive root system so if your soil temperature isn't at, at par they, they halt so you have to have warm enough soil which is you know so most people aren't measuring their soil temp right so they're not putting a thermometer into the soil of the of the garden saying what is my surface temp and if that's not right you can't plant and if you transplant and you shock them you screw it up too but if you see an auto put in correctly Oh, it's an incredible plant because the 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 vigor genes have been basically stroked. So what they have is this explosive growth profile in a very rapid period, and they'll fill the world with the the, the products you need for like lower quality. At, at some point, I'm sure they're going to nail an auto that can compete with anything smoke wise. But to me, autos are the things you use to fill your your edible markets anything that you're going to use as a concentrate that doesn't require epicurean traits i would get it from my autos and i know that if you're doing fields of autos correctly they're very cost effective and it allows you to get your good b-grade products to the market at a good fair price so remember most people are buying everybody wants a ferrari most people are buying a toyota or honda right and there's no shame in that i mean they make great cars. It's just that your budget dictates it. I have this view and people, you know, they get angry about it, but it's, there's only two customers to me Two. I don't, th- nothing else matters except this one thing. If it's, if it's a customer, if it's someone, if it's a patient, million different variations, customer, then because they're coming to buy something. That's the definition, right? There's only two that exist. Those that buy what they want and those that buy what they can afford. So those that buy what they want, the conversation is radically different than those that buy what they can afford. And I make sure that I try to service both of them, but 85, 90% of the effort is going to go towards those that buy what they can afford because that's 80 to 90% of the population. The other 15, 10 to 15% is they buy what they want 
that's your Epicurean upper scale group. And so everybody wants to serve them only because they believe that's where all the success in life is. But the problem is they're not always buying a lot of weed, cocaine, champagne, shit like that. They're on. But when it comes to herb, they're not. Herb is a blue collar drug more than anything. And when you when you talk about this stuff, you have to make sure to me, you always have to have that customer in mind that at the end of the day, what we want and what who cares? What what matters is what does the customer want? And the customer would like to have cheaper pot. And if they could grow it using technology that allows them to get it, that's excellent. Because at the end of the day, that's a fair market. If if we're talking a market economy, the the things that are required are you can enter and exit at will and you're there to serve your own best interest. So as soon as we start to put limits on that by saying, oh, no, no, that's not fair to us, the small farmer. We need to create this special situation where they don't get to do that. That's not a that's not a fair market. And so you're asking for concessions and considerations. There's no difference than if I said I wanted to be a monopoly because that's also not a fair market. So. To me, what we have to address is where does the majority of people get their weed? They're going to get it from easy to grow commercial sources. And where does that leave the small operator to work on Epicurean Lane? But what I know from the, you know, the auto work is that it's only a couple of genes that control it. And so you're going to able, you're going to be able to see incredible profiles being brought out. And they even have ways to create semi-autos where they're just accelerated in their flowering cycle. And there's something to do with the vigor gene that seems to drag along with it. And I'm not a geneticist. So sometimes when I talk about this, I get geneticists jumping up and down, screaming at me online. But I'm not a geneticist. I just work with the geneticists. I just help them choose the traits that sell. I help them say, these are the things I want as a grower, and I never want that. And then they're able to say, okay. And then I ask them, so what are we doing? They go, oh. What we have is uh, multiple gene interactions that make this happen. And if we're able to trigger these things and, 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 and place them within other plants, then what we have is an ability to make any plant do this. And so what I know is that our future will be extremely technologically advanced in how we grow cannabis. And I just know that it's the inevitability that there, there, there is, it, it will happen. And it's, it's when it takes place, you know, through the entire state of Nebraska, it's when you are cultivating, you know, 10,000 hectare in Australia. It's when you're doing, you know, 6 million acre in, in Colombia because you're providing 40% of the earth with its extract, which is what is going to happen. That's, that's where it's all going to take place. And that's how it's going to happen. But it's 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 just the inevitability. You what happens right now is everybody's lumped in the same group. It's just pot. You have to have commercial, or you can't have craft. They're comparative terms. They're opposite sides of the same piece of paper. So without one, you can't have the other. You can't have one side of paper because paper has two sides. So we have to have commercial in order for people to say, you know what, I want craft. And for people who smoke craft, they're like, hey, I love smoking craft, but I got to go to a party and I'm going to go smoke with a bunch of people that don't appreciate it. Let me just go, let me go back, grab some auto pre-rolls because it's the same with liquor. After the first two drinks, the best thing you can do is drink, drink cheap booze because you're not going to know the difference. So you're drinking $200 whiskey and now you're drinking $20 whiskey. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, hugely. You know, I was thinking about that the other night myself, just with uh, some wine I was going to take with me. You know, you, you're 100% right. Soon enough, there'll be fields of gelato 41 autos and you'll, you'll barely be able to tell the difference. And, you know, it could be a good thing for a lot of reasons. I just wanted to quickly loop back. You'd mentioned some um, uh, Zamal strains a little earlier in the answer. I saw on your Instagram, you posted some photos of some Reunion Island seeds. Did you end up growing those out? Was there anything cool in there? No, I didn't. I just stashed them because uh, those were from like 24 week open populations. And I just, I, I received them and then I just banked them because I was just, do I really, like I went through this phase where I, I went on this haze phase, right? Where I was haze obsessed. And, you know, I spent a lot of time and a lot of space digging through deep cycle populations and you really, really have to want to do that shit. I mean, you it's its not casual. Like, you really, you can't fuck up at all. You, you're basically, you're, you're dealing with, it. They're, they're, they don't like any nutrition. So they, they work off of the bare minimum. And if you, if you mess up at all, you'll curl these things up. And if you're not able to, like, really bring the light down heavily over time and maintain the intensity, they don't finish. So it's really hard to control a plant that wants to be 20 foot indoor. So you're chopping it back. And I mean, try to do this with a building, right? So, I mean, I went on this. I did. I, I dove. I went into it. And I was looking for the, for the holy grail of the hazes because I'd smoked so much Colombian growing up that I was like, I know Colombian. And I was looking for all these and and really, you know, that that's the thing is, is Hayes Thai or Hayes Colombian? Depends who you talk to. But no matter what, they require an incredible amount of effort indoor if they haven't been like a worked population. And what you find is that a lot of the stuff that we consume coming from the, you know, the seed banks, the parental selection is poor. And so you're having to go through, you know, I went through, we're talking like, you know, year and a half of digging through populations, which is 140 days. So I can get, you know, basically two, two and a quarter runs in. So in a two year period, you get five runs in. Brutal. Right. So five versus 12 is a radically different uh, amount, but I had my home garage sparked up and I, and it was tall. So I was able to do it all in the garage and work it, but I went through population after population. I wasn't really that impressed with a lot of it. Because what it let me understand was the parental selection had been done poorly. And when I was talking to Charles, me and him were rapping about it. And he said the same thing that when he did his initial selection, he said it had got so spread out that he had to go through almost any, at the time he had, you know, huge resources spatially. He said he had to go through over 700 to find the parental stock that he wanted. And then what it did is it allowed him to get selection down to like 10 to 15. So now you could go through 10 to 15 seeds and find something that was epic. But for me, I noticed the same thing. I had amassed this collection of these equatorials from all these different companies. And I went on this crusade to find the, the fire. And what I found was okay. And okay doesn't justify 140 days. And so the thing with the Zamal was it was a great gift from someone who went to Zamal. And I wish I had got those seeds before I went on that Colombian or that Thai dig because I would be braver. But once you realize it's going to be, you know, 24 weeks, you're looking at, you know, 160 days of flowering. And even if you bring it down to like, you know, 10, 14, you're still in the 120s. 
you really, and what am I getting? And so sometimes, you know, I just like, I, as I get older, I said, okay, how about we don't hunt them here? How about we hunt those in Colombia? How about we go hunt these varieties in their land of origin where they just grow. And then we select the phenotype from that population versus let me do it indoor in California because it was just, it's just impractical. 90 days is reasonable. 90 days is good. You know, like, and a lot of plants really that we pick at nine should really go into that, that 11, 12 week period. But 90 is good. If you can get something to finish in the 90 range, that's stellar. That's reasonable. But once we get past that, there's got to be some exceptional reason why, not just because it's different. Different, different different. But exceptional, that's something where like it's worth, you just straight up know it's worth your time to do it. Most certainly. And while we're on the topic of exceptional, I'm sure you've had a plethora of memorable weed come across the desk at the nursery over the years. Can you recall one or two that jumped to mind as extremely unique or memorable? Over the last 20 years, what we did is we destroyed the gene population and we just basically went, you know, we went right into perp, then we go right into cush, and then we went right into cookie, then we went right into candy gas. And they were all interesting in their own regard, but like they, they didn't stand out. What stood out was like a, a Mexican that I grew that was identical to smoking a Newport cigarette, <laughs> where if you, if you, if you mess around with menthol, it was menthol cigarette. It was insane. I had, I had some seeds that I got from an old dude in, in Soham when I got here, like in the nineties and there was, uh, and I, man, I missed that plant, but one of them was when it, when it burned in the joint, it burned so oily. It looked like you had lit a tire up. And when you smoked it, it was so devastatingly strong. It knocked me out and put me on the couch. And I woke up and my, my, my girlfriend was wiping my face with the wet rag. Cause she thought I was ill or something. She goes, Oh, you're moaning and you're shaking. I'm washing your face. <laughs> and I was cracking. I said, no, I'm just really, I like this stuff was next level power. And so that like, it just stood out because nothing had that type of nail you to the wall potency, just to a degree that was frightening. The rosin that I made off of that Afghani cherry pie was absolutely unique. I took it to a breeders meeting with a lot of really well-known people and turned them yellow. I mean, they, they were just shaken from the potency of it. And the flavor was excellent. It had that really disgusting cheese-like aroma. So high in methylbutric acid and heavy, heavy sulfur. So the mouth was really interesting, but the potency was crippling. Um, I had a skunk that kind of reminded me of a sour diesel in the way it stacked, but it was the most noxious piss skunk in the world. And I got it from a friend of mine, Brian, and his buddy, his, the, the, his buddy's dad was the head of the drug task force in the triangle. And the dad brought home a plant to the son and said, out of all the years we've been raiding weed, this is the best weed I've ever seen. And I stole a plant for you and gave it to his son. And then the son shares it with Brian. And then Brian shares it with me. And that shit was supernatural. And it, that's the one plant that I lost in a raid that I, of all plants I've ever lost in raids or boss or any of that shit, that's the one I missed the most because it was so 
exceptional in the mouth, the nose, the weight, the resistance. Every single part of the plant looked like a marble, but connected in a tightly dense cluster. So you almost had no leaves on it whatsoever. And when you broke it apart, each piece got beautiful sun. So the coloration was consistent throughout. And it, it had an odor that was so loud that when I opened up the car door at the football game, I was at the Oakland Raiders, the door opened up, the smell blew out. It blew through the parking lot, hundreds of yards. Two cops turned their heads and ran at the car and arrested me. And I mean, they were like out of view when I opened the door. I mean, I'm talking like hundred, like football field away. That There was nothing that was more volatile than that shit. So, you know, and the, the one that I saw in, in Pakistan was exceptional. I think the... The Zakatakis uh, work that Charles had in uh, Jamaica was exceptional. What an incredible odor, like just absolutely pungent, stunning, unique. So I think that, you know, when you're talking about really exceptional standouts, they they don't fit into any category of today. And I don't mean like categories of perception that I, I lay them out as, but they don't, they're, they're, they're just not present. We're not working with those extreme ends of the gene pool right now. We're working with really more consistent populations, safe. And distribution doesn't like risk. So distribution doesn't favor plants that are outliers. They want things that this is what the market wants. And so it, it, it discourages in ingenuity and discovers innovation and it inhibits your, your creativity. So you don't explore the weird edges and uh, what else is some sexy shit? I, I really like the the Pam Anderson work from uh, Tyler Family Trees. Some of his Pam, Pam Anderson is this, this line that he picked up in L.A., you know, decades ago. And he named it after Pam Anderson, the the actress. But that stuff is some sweat inducing cheese. It, it, everything's like a dirty sock and a funky bag of cheese. But it puts a mouth on it that's just absolutely stupendous with a ripping high. So I love all the, 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 the Pam work that he's done and he shared it with Nick Risden. Risden um, opened up those populations and put into a bunch of stuff. So to me, that's pretty unique. Um, what else is really, really unique that just stands out that doesn't taste like anything else. There was a cheese out of uh, Michigan um, I'm trying, I'm trying to, I, I don't remember the uh, Paisley Farms did it, but it was a rosin. I can't remember who bred it, but it was so indistinguishable from like um, Parmesan cheese that I, I had my girl close her eyes and I held the Parmesan cheese up and the rosin and I went back and forth and she couldn't tell the difference. Wow. Yeah, like I mean, it was that level. So, I mean, that really stood out. What really caught me recently too... Um, Shit, that's really all the weird standouts, you know. Like, remember, the, you always remember the first time you smoke OG. You know, I, I I love LA Pure Kush. That cut I have, I think that that can stand next to any herb. Like, period. It's got such a mouth on it, such a it's such a, a complete flavor all the way to the roach. And there's no everybody I shared the plant with, like the crew I roll with, everyone that got a got a cut of it, like that's their go to smoke. Because no matter what, they're going to get that effect they want from it. And so I still get little text messages and messages saying, man, I love you, bro, for giving me that plant. And I gave it to him fucking forever ago. 
They just let I'm laughing. I'm like, oh, you high as fuck right now. And so, you know, like it's stuff like that, that there's just these little things that just differentiate it from the norm. And it doesn't have to be a lot. It just has to be a point or two different, but a different enough to where it just sticks in your mind. Yeah, 100%. I, I could definitely relate. There's certain ones that just leave such a lasting memory for you. We normally ask this question sort of at the start of the episode, but we're going to switch it up today. We're going to ask it basically at the end. What was your first experience with cannabis? Oh, shit. <laughs> That's a good one. My my neighborhood was a crime zone, right? And my my one of my buddy's dad was a crooked cop. And so he was always robbing all the people he was arresting. And so when you went to his house and you went into his dad's room when he was at work, there was all kinds of stolen goods on his bureau and guns and knives and shit he was collecting from people and drugs. And so my buddy Kenny had access to, to the herb. The old man was jacking from people. And so this would have been between the summer of uh, uh, sixth grade and seventh grade. So I was 12. And so I'm seeing some of my older friends uh, that tell me, man, I've been smoking weed. I'm like, oh, I want to try some weed. And so Kenny's like, man, I'm going to go to my dad's room and score some weed. So he scores some weed and he scores a pipe too. One of these big old like Sherlock's, but all made out of metal parts, all like, you know, plumbing fixtures and shit, right? The old school pipe from the 70s, because this would have been 78. And we went up on the roof of my house and we were chilling and we light it up. And as I'm puffing it, a seed explodes and takes off in the air just as this cop car drives by my home. And we were all sitting there laughing like, did he see it? Did he see it? But no, no one's going to see a, 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 a seed pop. But you were so self-conscious that you were smoking weed and that there was police nearby. And I got a little bit of a buzz from it. But the next maybe a day or two later, he came by again. And this time we took my garage. I had a big garage and we hung a strobe light up on the ceiling of it. And we all got our bicycles in there and turned the lights off and turned the strobes on and we smoked and we were doing kind of like cage of death riding, you know, zooming by each other. And I'll never forget that shit because that's when I was high. And so I was just like, whoa. And it, it just kind of went from there. There was so much herb around because all the people that I was around were all involved in crime. So there was never a shortage of grass. And soon, you know, you get into the game a little bit and you start meeting the people that are trafficking it and they're helping you kind of get an education on what you're looking at, where they're like, they're not just selling you weed. They're like, you're getting to touch the bale and they're helping you understand, yeah, this Colombian's pretty good, but we usually get something in later in the season that's better. And I'm like, no way. And they're like, yeah, when that comes in, I'll go buy your house and grab you. So make sure you stash some money so that when it comes time, you can score the really good weed. And so these dealers would help me understand batch quality. And when really good shit popped out, they would combine and grab me. And then I'd get to see what like they considered premium Thai or premium Colombian or premium Lebanese hash or premium Moroccan hash or premium Afghani hash. And I just got this killer education and that was all, you know, prior to 83, 83 is when I caught my first, you know, case. So from 78 to 83, that five year period was this incredible education. So from 12 to, you know, basically like 12 to 17, I was, I was getting a, a fantastic education in the diversity of herb and still getting really high too. You know, when you're a kid then, man, you're just getting lit. <laughs> 
Oh my God, so jealous. That sounds like an awesome introductory into a lifelong passion. How did it sort of evolve from there to say when you had your first grow? Um, I, I started growing in 80. So we started smoking in 78. We get into a little bit. And I have a neighbor. I was a brown thumb. So that's why I always tell people that you can, you can, you can learn to be a good cultivator when you learn to listen to the plants. And I didn't have a background in in listening to the plants. And my friend was just more intuitive. So my buddy Bounce uh, took on the growing end of it. And I had a location in my grandmother's yard that we could grow in. And they didn't know it. But I, in the backyard, there was, a, there was a spot where no one knew that I and I could hide plants. And so we used to stash the plants there and grow them in my grandmother's yard. And it was just awesome because everything I touched, I was killing. But I could help Gary and Gary was uh, gentle with the plants. And so I started to develop a, a micro skill and I said, well, shit, I might as well spark up big. And so I filled the whole yard of, of my, my real house in 83 and got caught by the cops and got dragged out of high school in handcuffs. And so I don't grow again until 89 when I get out of the military. And so the day I get out of the service in, in the in uniform using the government vehicle, I picked up all my grow lights in Berkeley and sparked up in 89. I lived in Oakland, but the growth store was in Berkeley, Berkeley into the gardens. And I sparked up and I never stopped. So, you know, the first cultivation, you know, was 80, uh, three years of growing and then two years of not growing. And then into the military where I was around weed constantly and smoked and we were, shit, I was in the Coast Guard, we were raiding drugs everywhere. So I was looking at as much herb as anybody on planet earth and living in Hawaii exposed me to, and I, you know, it's funny, you go in the service, you're trying to be, you know, like, I'm going to be good. I'm not going to get in trouble. As soon as I get to the island, I hook up with cats that are smoking fire. And next thing I know, I'm smoking with them. And I'm like, holy shit, I can't stop. And I was loving it because the Hawaiian was just phenomenal. And then I moved to San Francisco in, you know, in, in, in uh, the late eighties and I'm in the Bay area and it's a, it's a smorgasbord of weed too. And so like, no matter where I go, I'm swimming in weed. And there was a story that really prompted me to go back into it professionally, but bottom line was it just, it was always around me and I just seemed to feel comfortable with it. And I wanted, I wanted to explore that world. I was just so curious. I just felt so uneducated and I just knew the herb was so massive and big and I knew I only knew so little. And I was like, man, if I could just apply myself, maybe one day, you know, I'll understand this complex thing. It was a hidden secret. You know what I mean? Like there was no real info, man. Like it was, it was, you know, the underground. Now it's, it's radically different. And I think it's better in that regard because regular people shouldn't have to go through that many hoops to get an education in, in cannabis use and cultivation. But it was almost cultish at that point. Like, you know, you were you were cautious. It was criminal. You wasn't no outlaw shit. You were you, when you went to criminal court. When I got dragged out of high school in handcuffs, I didn't go to, to outlaw court. I went to criminal court. <laughs> you know what I mean? Certainly, certainly. And, and a lot of prior guests have commented on that. You know, it's really hard to find info and people very tight-knit about who they disclose that they're a grower to and sharing information, even the next level of trust up. I guess I'm curious though, um, you know, I'm sure you grew for some time and then eventually you decided to start Wonderland Nursery. Where where did the idea first come from to start that? 
Well, I was already doing nursery work for years before I did Wonderland. I, I Wonderland uh, is after I worked at Humble Patient Resource Center. And before I worked at Humble Patient Resource Center, I was doing commercial nursery work for the community, meaning that other like large scale growers were accessing genes. What what I had done is I had I I was a good operation builder. And years earlier, I had so many operations running myself that I was able to do using the, the, I had to go to adult ed to learn how to use a spreadsheet. This was in the, the, you know, mid nineties kind of thing. And I was able to kind of crack the code on yield. I was able to figure out the variables that you had to adjust to make the plants produce. Like, what do you, like, it's really modern day crop steering, but I, I was, it was even more profound because you were having to actually steer an operation. So there's no data. There's nobody to copy and follow. And the standards were a pound of light. And so I said, I just think that that's just so underproducing. So I started to really figure out what it was that allows you to get higher yields and maintain quality. And when I cracked it, I went from pound of light into two. And then I went up to almost like, you know, 214, 213s, but two and a half all the time. So up at 2000s, I was getting five pounds. That's in the 90s. So it instantly made me attractive to work with for other cultivators that wanted to do things. Cause they were like, Whoa, off of a single table, you're, you know, two tables, you're pulling 10 pounds. So four lights is coming out to like, you know, 40 grand. They're like, how the fuck are you doing? Like you're making 40,000 out of a bedroom. That's insane. And so I said, well, I, pay me to build you a room. So I would build them a room, but in order for the room to work, I had to put in my system and my genes so that I could repeat the process for you. And what I started finding was that people didn't like to do cloning or do mothers because it was too problematic. It was a lot easier just to run a cycle. And so after I built the operation, they said, Hey, you know, would you provide the clones? And I'm like, sure. So I started doing clonal work. And the next thing you know, I mean, I'm just pumping clones out like crazy. So I was doing way more clonal production than I ever was cannabis production at that, that stage of my career, you know, into the two thousands, because I was just skilled at it. And I, and I was willing to take the risk on the plant counts and I was able to generate, you know, an ungodly sum of money from doing plant material. And the people you deal with are different than buyers. You're only dealing with growers. So and they're, they're, they're coming in to buy the product they need to make their money. So where you insert yourself into the supply chain changes the relationship. So when I got into the, the operation in Arcata, when I took over cultivation director of that operation, I said, Hey, um, I let all the people know that were my prior clients, that if you went and got a 215, you could drive down to Arcata and legally buy plants from me and return with them with the script and they would be protected up to a certain number. And it, it, it exploded that company. I mean, it absolutely financially changed the direction of that business forever. And the owner and I ended up having conflict over direction. And it's a bummer too, because I was happy there, but some people just want to stay in one situation, their entire existence. And to me, what I know is that time can't be held still, that no matter what you're doing, you can't hold it this way forever. You have to adjust and change with the changes around you, 
or eventually you become a dinosaur and you're, you become extinct. And so she and I had different views and I, I left the company and I lit up Wonderland and, and Wonderland was funny because everyone was like, there's no way you're going to be able to do this. There's no one who's ever done a year round nursery at scale. It's never been done before. But I knew that if I mined the whole state of California, it certainly could be done. And so I light this place up and we go after the population of California where I'm, I'm swooping through neighborhoods all over Southern Cal, Central Cal, Northern Cal, Eastern Cal. I didn't care who's in California. I'm coming at it. And it allowed us to be able to just absolutely step up really quickly and what we were trying to do was put really, really good genes into the system. And good genes mean genes that when you grew them out, you could sell the product. But at the same time, what we had issues with was we would, we were also same thing as I understood that the world was changing. And I said, listen, we didn't use any toxic shit at, at, at the HPRC. And I said, and I don't want to use any toxic shit here. So we're going to have to start learning really how to do organic pest control, how like, because the future I knew was not going to allow you to use pesticides and, and fungicides that are, aren't allowed for human consumption. So as I'm doing my homework on potential problems we will face down the road, and I had done all this research fucking decades ago, I'm like, we got a problem with the tools we use. And so it was a learning process too. And that's why when I see people like someone gets some shit for doing something wrong, I'm like, you know, if you're first, you're going to make mistakes. And at the end of the day, are you still here? If you're still here, you had to have figured out what you did wrong. And so Wonderland, for me, it, it allowed me to understand biological pest control in a way that is critical for today's world. So it, it lets me work with my own crops at the farm in a radically different manner. So I'm grateful for the experiences. And I love the fact that we took so much incredible material I had collected over decades and just basically flooded the system with it so that these genes made people's lives better financially. And it funded all the charity programs we were able to do at Wonderland. So it was this, it was a really magic moment where in life it's rare that you get to do philanthropical work at the same time you're doing work. And medical cannabis kind of was that where I got to be part of medical cannabis where the people who were ill and having problems, we just covered your shit for free. And people who were making money, we were making money with you. So I'm making sure that the markets that you're approaching, I'm giving you the right plants for those markets. See, I would do all the market research. I would figure out what was hot in every major city across the U.S. And then when, and I would acquire the plants that needed to fill those holes. So when you came into me and you told me, hey, I moved weed to Atlanta, I would know what was hot in Atlanta, and that's what I would set you up with. So what it did is it allowed you to instantly be able to hit your target markets at speed, and instantly you were recovering your money and coming back quicker. And it allowed me to be able to work with all these farmers and develop. So the more they bought, the bigger I got, the better I did my homework, the more money they made. And so Wonderland was really almost like a brain trust more than it was a nursery. It was people didn't really come in to buy clones. They came in to ask me, what should I do? And then I would then sell them the clone that would fit the need. So it, it, it made it this really interesting, proactive relationship 
And I also did stuff that other people wouldn't do where I, I, I lived in Oakland for years. And so most of my partners that I rolled with weren't white. And so I didn't have an issue of going down to Oakland and dealing with people that weren't white. All my partners that I rolled with up in Humboldt were basically Samoan and Tongan. So for me, being around people that were poly was fine. I had done work with Mexicans for years, right? So I was able to go work with the Mexicans. And when the Bulgarians and the Ukrainians and all the Russian groups started coming into the area, I understood what they were seeking, which was quality product that would work. And I approached them. So instead of just kind of focusing only on the, the typical cannabis cultivator, I went after the ones that I had spent my life around, people that have to cultivate because that's where the money's coming from. And what I would do is I would create my menus in different languages, Hmong, you know, uh, like Laotian, um, Spanish, um, and uh, uh, Ukrainian. And I would have them translated, and then I would have I I would have my partner Chemo. Um, he would go to all, I would identify where all the supermarkets and ethnic food stores in each one of the areas were, and I would have him go there and talk to those people and say, "Hey, is it okay if we put this up in your store?" And so what I did is I went after the target populations where they lived around California, and I gave them the menus in their own language, and I put it in places where they would see it. And it, it just allowed me to get a reach that was just wicked. And when the, the cannabis industry turned upside down, I got really fortunate because when they started changing all the zoning, they changed the zoning of my operation. So Wonderland no longer had an ability to cultivate at that location. But some uh, people said, hey, we would love to have you come over and work with us and be partners on an operation here. And so that's how I got into the one log. And then Cookies approached us to do the nursery. And then step by step, we ended up becoming their entire you know, research and development facility for that entity. So all the work I did in Wonderland, it just put me into a position where people realized that you were seeing something others weren't because you were moving plants at a pace no one was with, with really no staff to do sales. It was just that I was doing all this work on my own because I understood that if I just I just learned this as a kid. If I make you money, we should make money together. If I'm if I'm filling your pockets with cash, it's rare that you don't come back and deal with me. Yeah. Business is business. Yeah, powerful stuff. And what a what a really unique and organic sort of progression you just described there to ultimately have the the various facilities you operate in today. That's really inspiring the development i've got uh i've got a few of our patreon fans submitted questions before we get into the final five questions first one i'm just going to quickly run by you um our first listener says uh can you ask kev has he done any work with any cbd cbg or any of the alternative varieties and if so what does he find to be the most medicinal man that's a good question we did we were it's funny, but like some of the first CBD work ever done in the United States came out of my original shop and I didn't do the breeding or the development on it. I just was, I was the one who who listened to the person talk about what was potentially possible and said, okay, I'll dedicate floor space and people to the op. And that's where ACDC came out. So ACDC and it was from Courtney. There was Wade Louder who did Harlequin. And then there was Ringo who did Ringo's gift. And 
that was all simultaneously at the same time. That would have been like around, you know, 208, 209. And so all that work resulted in this massive development of CBD. And what I had done was I open sourced it. I started flooding the market with all these CBD cuts because what we realized was non-psychoactive cannabis would transform the public perception of cannabis. Because if you're no longer feeling pain from your arthritis in your hands from a rub cream, then maybe you'll have some compassion for someone who needs to smoke cannabis because they're depressed. And so my theory was if we shared the genes in this way, it would absolutely infiltrate the public. And it did. So like I was known for years for just releasing shit, millions of dollars of free clones. I did it for free. So I mean, release hundreds and hundreds of thousands of plants to groups all over the world of CBD genes. And what I think is that if you're if you're working with CBD, I think some of the the mix ratios, like one to ones, two to ones, are ideal because when we it, it depends on the individual. But say you're say you're a normal cannabis consumer, if you have some CBD woven in, it it balances out the high. So like when you really look at land race populations, they're not all pure THC. They're definitely mixed cannabinoids because they're not steering towards a singular, singular molecule. And because of it, what you have is a better synergy. And so I think that the, the best thing you could do is, you know, go into some of these modern hemp varieties and use them as a platform to bring in more THC so you can get to a 12, 12, 13, 15, something in that range. And what you'll have is you'll have the best effects of both. And on a lot of these other cannabinoids, that's a tough one because really I don't, I don't, I don't try to chase cannabinoid du jour because really that's a, a molecular basket hunt. That means you have to be really using labs to do so much of the driving and the work towards it. And it's expensive. And that's not me. Not I mean like I, I can work with you on a project to do it by helping you choose plants. But what I want is I want cannabis that I like to consume for the reasons I do. And so when I'm chasing something, I have to kind of have a desire to touch it and play with it. And so THC molecule is one I really seem to like. And I like it woven in with some CBD, but I, I don't, I didn't go after the CBCs, the CBGs. Um, I have a plant that's got some THCP in it at, at, you know, detectable levels, which is very rare. And I'm fascinated by that. I don't know if there's enough there to be able to actually steer towards the direction, but THCP is a, a molecule that is like 30 times stronger than THC. And so it, it, to me, it's one of the things that affect longevity of high and, um, just the overall, how much you need in titration to get high. I'm pretty fascinated by that. I think some of the, the THCV work that's being done right now is fascinating. And I got to consume some THCV herb grown by a brand called Pure Beauty out of LA. And so it's a woman owned living soil indoor op. And I've never met any of the team, but I they sent me some of the products so that I could uh, do an essay on it. And I was astounded, man. They just straight crushed it. So the pure beauty girls are throwing down some straight heat. And that THCV was fascinating because you got this unbelievably effective uplifting high. And when you came down, you didn't crash. 
And it had a really interesting side effect where you weren't hungry afterwards. You didn't go through the munchie cycle, but like you, it wasn't that you weren't hungry. You could eat dinner, but you didn't eat dinner twice. You know, it's where to me, if I'm smoking BHO, I have to be careful because I'm going to not just eat the pizza on my plate, but I'm going to eat the pizza in the box. THCV didn't do that. So I think the mix, I think the, the novel cannabinoids are fascinating, but I think for the average individual, a one-to-one, a two-to-one is just something wonderful to have. Yeah, I've certainly found a one-to-one is sort of that sweet spot for myself, so I can hugely relate to what you just said there. And we got another good one from one of the listeners who says, I saw that photo of the huge ball of uh, the Roberts Creek Congo hash on his Instagram I'd love to hear any hash making tips for making hash from like low yielding but special plants. You know the 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 process of hash is 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 pretty well laid out. What you what you have to do when you work with plants that just don't produce is recognize that. So you you it's not for commercial purposes. When I made that ball of that Roberts Creek Congo hash, I laughed and I said, I guarantee there's no bigger ball of this shit in the country at this point right now. Because nobody would waste that much weed to make that much hash. But I, I got some right here. I still got a piece of it left. <laughs> I still have, I still have a piece of it left right here. Yeah, it's a oh, little, little nice. tiny nugget. That's been, yeah, yeah, two years old now. I was smoking it the other night. I got destroyed. Um you just have to be able to like make those decisions. And the, the, the situation is it's really difficult if you're doing it indoor and you're paying electricity on that shit. So for me, you know, it's different that I, I could do the Roberts Creek outside and I could get a plant that could throw me three pounds so that I could basically get a golf ball of hash off of it. Because, you know, you're talking yields that are just non-existent in the wash. And I knew that when I went into it, but I just wanted to try it. I wanted to say, hey, what happens when you don't care about return? What you care about is the quality of the return. And the Roberts Creek Congo hash was excellent. And I still love smoking. I only got that little piece left. You know, I probably got like, what, maybe two, three grams left. But man, it was just grabbed you. And and it, and it didn't lift it, it when it was fresh. The high was way more like heady as it started to mature and, and really polymerize. The effect became way more pronounced and profound where you felt it in your body too. So two-year-old Congo hash is still unbelievable. And it's two years. It was two years ago that I did that easy. So I think you just have to be able to make it, you know, work for you and don't be afraid. You know, if you have an outdoor patch next year, same thing. I want to do... I want, I, I got, a, I got a, one of my, one of my red lab plants is, is low yielding, but the, the profile is so attractive and I know that it'll break off well, that it'd be worth me doing my whole medical garden of just that to wash and then grow my six plants for my flower. So I just think that at the end of the day, if you're not looking at commercial constraints and you're a consumer, who gives a shit? Totally. Got to follow the passion and the quality. I love that. A question we end up asking most guests on the show. If you had to take a guess, what do you think is the genetics behind the legendary ChemDog 91? Oh, that's a good question. You know, the, the, the chem lines, I remember I was out there in 
Paonia. I was out there in, in Crested Butte area of Colorado where all that comes from initially. I was there around 92, 93. And my partner was out there and, and it was funny because he was like, Kev, he goes, I smoked some weed here that, that destroyed any other pot I ever smoked in my entire life. He said, this area is the hotbed of Colorado for killer weed. And there was, um, I just talked to somebody that it was, they were trying to chase down what was the parental stock of it. And at the end of the day, we just know basically where it came from. We know it came out of the, that area, but I do not know the lineage. You know, we can say it's, it's got to be a hybrid. So it has to have some form of, of something broadleaf and something narrow because of the growth characteristics, right? So like on a morphological level, you can see traits that are explosive in growth on the 91, which only really apply to plants that have to outgrow everything around it in the surrounding vegetation, but it has a profile that is distinctly Afghani Pakistani. Yeah. I'm not sure we'll ever really know the, the true origins. Maybe genetic testing will get a little more info at some point, but might just need to accept that we'll never fully know. I uh, have another good one from one of the listeners who said, mm -hmm. I got a pack of seeds from the 2020 Durand line of the Gazni. Yeah. What sort of expressions did you get from your hunt? What can they um, hope to find themselves? I found two really distinct profiles, both male and female. And it was kind of neat because it, it made it pretty easy to make your choices. But what I found was, you know, green and purple. And purple was more open branching, kind of umbrella shaped, pomegranate, nut paste, floral sweet. And then the green was more pole-like, chunky, with just a, a, a ferociously noxious sulfur. And so when I did all my hybridization work, I went with the sulfur because everybody was going fruit and sweet and I was kind of sick of it. And what I wanted was some, you know, really funky, nasty, deep penetrating odors, aromas and highs. And that's where when I did that, that project that took the male I chose that I made those plants with or one of them, there was multiple males in that in that release. But the one that I kept for myself, that's the one that I went into all the fuels and the cherry pie and pulled out that cherry pie plant that was absolutely a plus and i had my son's friend come by and fresh freeze it and then process it and then rosin it for me so that i'd have because i don't do rosin i don't press it and so i i wanted someone that could go through the process and give me a dabbable product that i could take to this event so that this is the product i wanted to show people that was possible when we take some of these lines and it was so attractive that the lead breeder of raw Adam got excited by it. And I ended up giving him some seeds so that he could go play with it. And they, they did a huge uh, selection of it this year to see how it worked out for them at their operation because he had never smelled a profile like that in person. It was just super attractive. And at the end of the day, all I really wanted to have people do was be able to say, Hey, this reflects uh, seed stock from Gosney. And it was, uh, uh, you know, Indian land race that put it out. So all I did was clean up the population to get rid of the intersects for on an indoor sip. So I ran it outdoor, took the ones from the out, put them in the ones that went intersects I called. And that's what we used as the population to make that F2. And you have two directions, really. It broke up really, really clearly. And, and I would love to go back. And I think I will when I get a chance. I'll go back and I'll do the purple pomegranate 
with the nut paste because that was super exotic too. It's just that I was bored with all, you know, you got to go back. I probably did that like three, three, four years ago. Right. And I was just bored with all the candy gas shit. And so I said, look, I want some, I want some really deep funk. And then I went and deep funked it for a while. And like, maybe I wouldn't mind going back into some of the florals and fruits, but not from the typical gene pools. So go play. And if they do a preservation, make sure you put the males and the females together to get the assortment. You want to be able to keep a good cluster of the genes pure and then choose males that you can play with to find out their impact on the females you want to use. So you're able to do hybridization, bring the qualities forward. The qualities that got brought forward too, I noticed was incredible um, change in water consumption. The plants decreased water consumption dramatically which was one of the reasons really why I wanted to mess around with some of that work because we were in the middle of this horrific drought in California. And I was like, man, if I could just put some better water efficiency on some of these plants, it would just be a lot easier for us. So we're not having to go through so much water. And in the trials, I just noticed that all of those hybrids I did all watered at, you know, oh, and I would say twice as, you know, the twice, like, you know, double the infrequency but probably like 0.6. So extremely water effective. That's awesome to hear some really cool observations there. And, you know, hopefully our listener can find some cool stuff in there. I've got one last fan submitted one before our final five. It's a cool one. One we've never asked our guests before. I'm, I'm keen to see what you think on it. The question is, what's the hardest part about being cannabis famous? Do you get stopped a lot? Do you find people respect your time, generally speaking? I do. I do. I get, I do get stopped a lot. And it's weird because I never expected to be, f you know, famous in a thing. And it wasn't really the desire as much as I was desiring to be recognized for the work I had done. And I ended up just be becoming featured on media enough times that all of a sudden you kind of become comfortable with it. And you, you, because you're not desiring that position, you understand that they're the people that are listening are not really there to listen to me as much as they're listening to what's coming out of my mouth in terms of information. So what, what I know is that I try to provide information to the public that has value and I try to be approachable. And the hard part is that in real life, it's hard to you know be able to give that much time to that many people. And so what you have to do is you got to kind of create like parameters where people reach out to you and they're reaching out to you seven times a day. And you're like, look, I don't talk to my own kids this often. Um, could you just maybe not hit me up every 15 minutes and we'll, we'll probably be able to have a better long-term friendship. So what I do is I, I try to create some separation of barriers, but not remove you from the picture. And if you approach me, and you polite, man, I'm always down to sit down. If you want, if you want to lay out your whole business plan to me and I, I have to go spend six hours of like trying to sort through your shit, I'm like, that's business. But if you're asking me a question and you just want to bounce an idea off of somebody and you're able to like be polite in the way you approach me, it's rare that I won't sit down and try to take the time because at the end of the day, my desire in real life was to do well and to see people around me do well. I, I wasn't trying to do well alone. And I just think that when you behave that way, you end up having a better life, period. 
your life is richer because you're around people trying to do positive shit. And just because you're being nice doesn't mean you're stupid or you're a sucker because you know the difference. And so for me, it's it's about the approach where you don't have to give me, a, I call it a verbal blowjob. I don't need a verbal blowjob. I just need you to to treat me like anybody else you meet and, and just be polite and and approach me in a way that's approachable. And if you can do that, then we can begin a conversation. And so for me, that's why I make myself so available at all the conferences I attend, all the different events I go to. Because what I know is that I get to see so much of the cannabis world that if I can provide little tidbits of info to people that are trying to figure something out and find a world for them, it maybe it changes how they approach people in their future. Maybe if we behave this way, then you'll behave this way. You know, it's like the same thing with me giving the genes out. I helped all these people that it was funny because when I was doing it, everybody was like, you're a heretic. You're helping out nobodies. But I'm like, yeah, but they're nobody to you, but they're decent people to me. They don't have to have any value to me. I, I, I'm not seeing as that. They're just good people. And if I give them this cut and they, they use their own skills and effort to take it further, and it, it really well could change their life. It'll change it financially for sure. And so what happens is I didn't realize that I was developing a future of people. And you go 15 years into the future and you got people hitting you up and they were like, hey, you know, when I was 16, 17, you helped me change my life. I'm in my mid 30s and I'm running a monstrous operation in another country. And I just wanted to reach out to you to let you know that if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. And I never got to thank you. But now that, you know, I can find you publicly, I can say thank you for being good to me when no one else was. And it's it's like emotional because you you're not thinking about it like that. You're just trying to be decent. It, it was like the Louis the 13th cut, right? I get the Louis the 13th cut because some old lady had a bad time and I helped her out. And and she knows what I do. And she and she she uh, comes to my office and she brings the phone and says, here, my family wants to talk to you. And it was her Armenian in-laws that owned the, the Louis the 13th cut down there in L.A. that were making all the money on it. That cut was hotter than a firecracker. And they drove all the way from L.A. to Humboldt to bring me five clones to say here, these are the most valuable OG clones in the connection right now. Like this is the number one cut in the game. Here's five cuts for you for helping our, our mother-in-law. And I had no idea that mother-in-law was connected to these, these hustlers from L.A., but it was just a good deed for an old lady that needed some help. And so I think that, you know, for me and my, and it's almost like an innocent world, but like I came from a different background, man. It was rough. A, a nicer life is never bad. And so when you, when you, when you decent to people, it allows you a radically different existence and being well-known in something is never bad. As long as when people meet you, you're the same person that they, they see. And so for some people it's not good because they're like, well, you were smart ass in real life and on the net. But for most it's good because I'm pretty predictable. And at the end of the day, what I want to see is I want to see cultivators around the world in, in a, in a, in a, cohesive collaborative cluster that lets us help shape the future that we'll all have to deal with when we're old 
And like I said, I've been saying for decades, I'm just a tiny link in a chain that's going on forever. And I just want to be a good link. And so if you want to link up with me, you can. And if you don't, you can let go. It's all good. But being being exposed is a gift because it allows you to really be able to do some incredible things you can't do if you're not. Yeah, that's an awesome take. I really like that. And it sounds like you, you know, make yourself available to people, which is really generous of you with, you know, your time. I'm sure it's limited. On to our final five quick fire questions. The first one I want to ask. Okay. What is the single most memorable experience you've had with cannabis? So this doesn't have to be like the strongest nug or the most insane dab. Just whatever is the most memorable for whatever reason. I got it, man. I got I got the story. I smoked some weed from Ponape. I was working out in Micronesia and I smoked some weed and I got so high that I couldn't navigate the off ramp on the freeway. And so I just drove around the island for hours until I came down because every time I got to the on-ramp, it was too technically difficult for me to navigate. And so I just did another loop around the island and I was just praying that I didn't run out of gas because there was no way that I could navigate this off-ramp until I came down. (laughs) (laughs) That is brilliant. I really like that. That's one of the best ones, I think. Um, So on the other end of the spectrum, what's a strain where everyone around you really hyped about it? Everyone's telling you it's going to be the best thing ever. You finally try it yourself and you're sort of like, oh, is this it? Oh, shit. That would have been Purple Punch recently. When Purple Punch first came out, everybody was hyping the living hell out of it. And then we smoked it. We were like, huh? What? (laughs) I think that was the most hyped strain I've seen in a minute that just really gorgeous top 10 visual who won the flavor totally that's that's one of the top contenders we do here on the show you know so there you go next one is i'm going to drop you off on a desert island you got infinite resources and you can take three strains or packs of seeds with you what three things are you going to take oh damn i'd have to take i'd have to take uh three packs of seeds because if i'm on a desert island i probably don't have a nursery and so I would I would want to work with um, something in that LAPK range because I I I need that type of profile. I would love to have something that was in the 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 Mexican groups like that Zacatacus or the Acapulco, just because the high is um, just so interesting and the flavor is so rich. And I love uh, like a killer tie. I love that that super cerebral high and that that really back in the day, man, ties change flavor. But like for me, all the tie we consumed, you know, in the 80s, when people say chocolate tie, man, I don't know if it's color or not, but like the flavor was sure chocolatey. I mean, it was amazing and the high was absolutely riveting. So I would do that. I'd go like a, a good Mexican collection, something out of Asia, Thai flavor. I think Thai flavors are better than Laos. I think the Cambodians, the Vietnamese are a little stronger. But I think the tie is more balanced. And then the the a self LAPK. But I want a self. I would need to have male, female populations, all three, so that I could play with it for a while. So I didn't feel like um, if anything happened, I'd be screwed. <laughs> I like that. Really balanced. It's a good little spread there. So similar but different question. I'm forcing you to start a seed company tomorrow and you can only start it with one pack of seeds. What pack of seeds would you use? Ooh, 
That's a good question. For me, myself, or for the public? For yourself and for the public. Like, as in, you can give two answers, one for each. Yeah, I guess if I, I mean, because I'm so obsessed with that red lead puck right now, it'd have to be that because that's what I did is I took those seeds and I chased it down and I'm throwing out, you know, lines for public sale. So that would be for me. For the general public, I would say gas is returning. So, you know, you're seeing like the, the hunger come back and I would go into something from like, like I would say, you know, Gabe Ruth's work is pretty good. Josh from um, Regen has got some good work. Risden's got some good work. Tyler Family Tree's got some good, good fuel work where he does some dog walker SFVs that are just ferocious. I'd say if you went into any of those groups right there, you know, there's always Gene is Gene's always got some really killer shit, but there's some guys that have some really nice work that aren't as known. And I think their, their uh, direction is good. And because it's fuel and these guys have been doing a lot of fuel based work for a while, I think their stuff's really interesting. Yeah. Great answer. You know, Gene's stuff is incredible. And all those dudes you mentioned, I'm, I'm familiar with them, you know, shout out to Josh and, um, you know, all the stuff there is awesome. So that's cool to hear. Final question for this one is, I've got a time machine for you. You can go back anywhere, any point in time, presumably to collect some genetics. Could be seeds, could be cuttings, could be whatever. Where are you going to go and what are you going to get? Wow, that's a good question. I I think I would go all the way. And it's funny because it, w- it would be the least commercially valuable because until you see feral populations, you just realize there's very little on them. But I would like to go back to where we map cannabis merge with humans, which would be Nepal, like, you know, plains of the Himalayas, um, you know, 14,000 years ago. I would, I would like to see the plants from then. I would like to see the plant that really drove people's obsession to move it so heavily on the Silk Route and down into these regions. That's what I'd like to experience. What 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 is it in its unadulterated form? The true P one, right there. Yeah, I, I want to know what. And I mean, we we know that cannabis is a million years old, but we can only go back fourteen thousand with any kind of recorded history. But that'd be enough. If I could go back fourteen thousand years and and experience the plains of Mongolia and get to see how they use the plant and eat the seeds and drink the tea and and then throw bales of it in the fire in the cave and have rituals and shit because <laughs> you know that's what they were doing they weren't smoking that shit they were using it as firewood but they would get ripped so that's what i'd love to experience i think because otherwise I've, i'm really been happy i've been able to touch and smoke and see and experience so much that it would it would just be awesome to go back and 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 see our roots that's what Pakistan did for me. It was this, it was beautiful. I mean, I, it was it was different than any other place I'd been to because the people had been in the valley, you know, for fifteen hundred years. Each family was like, we've always been here, you know, fifteen centuries. Herb has been here before us. This is what we've always done. We've always eaten it. We've always drank it. We've always smoked it. And it it just lets you understand the holistic, complete relationship with the plant that. I only really knew in skewed form. It wasn't until I got into medical cannabis that I really started to understand 
medical applications. Then we, we get into the discovery of CBD and you get to really see how many applications. And then I, I get into doing all the green juice work. So you start to see it in its acid form unconverted and you're like, my gosh, if we had mixed cannabinoids, we would have these impacts. If we had acid form, we would have these impacts. And so my, my career just kept turning the, the facet. It kept turning the stone. So I get to see more and more facets and I got to see so much that I'm just grateful that I got to see it. It's just been this never ending turning of a stone that's unlimited in depth. No matter how far I go, the deeper I dive, the cl- the farther from the bottom I find myself. That's beautiful. You know, a student of life by the sounds of it. I love that. So, sounds like that's just about the end of it for this one. Any comments or shout outs you'd like to make? Yeah, I just want to say thank you for having me on the show. It's um, it's always a pleasure to, to be able to sit down and, and talk with friends. And I always want to thank the listener for taking the time to listen to me, you know, go off on my tangents because at the end of the day, they have a choice to not hear it. So thank you for uh, the support and um, be nice. Cannabis, cannabis is a beautiful drug. It, it seems to bring out some really lovely attributes in people. A hundred percent. And we are all indebted for you taking the time to share your knowledge today. So again, a big thank you to one of the most well-known faces in NorCal and Mendo, a local legend, the man behind Wonderland Nursery, a career hustler and true cannabis connoisseur. A big thank you to Kevin Jodry for coming on the show today. Beautiful. Thank you. That was wonderful. And there you have it, gang. Thanks for joining us to the end. And a massive shout-out to Kevin Jodry coming on the episode, sharing some knowledge and teaching us a whole bunch. And a massive shout-out to you guys for getting to the end. We appreciate you so much, just like we appreciate our incredible sponsors. If you want to help support the show, support our sponsors. Massive shout-out to Seeds here now. Don't forget, guys, it's pineapple time. Check out the pineapple strains online, 20% off massive sales all month of february check it out massive shout out to seeds here now we love your support thank you so much likewise a massive shout out to our friends at pulse sensors all the best and latest sensors in the game including their new pulse hub which integrates all of their units together to ensure that your operation is on point producing bigger yields better terps higher potency whether you're running a single tent a single room or a multi-state operation pulse are here to help you guys Get serious, get a pulse. Further shout out to Copert, the number one leaders in sustainable biocontrol solutions for pests and disease. If you're battling spider mites, please check out the Spidex Vital sachets. I can't tell you how annoying it is to have to spread carrier material in your garden just to get the predators out. These new sachets circumvent that. Just hang the sachets in your crop, let the person millers walk out, do the work for you. Trust me, guys, you won't look back. If you give it one go, you will see the quality. You will be converted. A massive shout-out to Copert. We appreciate your support so much. These guys are industry leaders. Check them out. Huge shout-out to our friends at Organics Alive, number one for powdered organic fertilizers. If you're thinking about giving organics a go, get on board. Their products make it so easy. Whether you're in veg, transition, or bloom, they've got products that make it easy to dip your toes in the water. 
Likewise, if you're a seasoned veteran of organics, I promise their products will help take your next crop to a whole new level. Massive shout out to Organics Alive. They have some of the best products on the market. Really fast release because they're small particle size. You will not go wrong with Organics Alive. Hit them up. Massive shout out and thank you. Finally, a big shout out to our friends at Dynavap. Just a week or two ago, they came out with some new models, the Titanium M-Series in two different colors. You can get yourself the Nebulum or the Quantium. I've been rocking the Nebulum. I love it, guys. Please give it a go. If you've ever tried a vape and felt like it didn't hit the way you were looking for it, these ones will. Truly a game changer based out of the US, owned in the US. Dynavap, truly one of the best vape companies on the market. I really, really love their products and we are super appreciative of their support. Massive shout out to Dynavap. Last but not least, massive shout out to the Patreon gang. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to help ensure the show continues to happen, please consider checking out Patreon dot com forward slash the podcast you will get early access to upcoming episodes unheard exclusive interviews and you go in the running to win a whole range of swag each month we give away genetics cannabis artwork a whole range of awesome products all while ensuring the show continues to happen again a massive shout out to the patreon gang we love you so 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 much thank you thank you thank you and i think with that i'll see you for the next one I'll see you.